Welcome back to the program. I think we can all stipulate that we continue to witness growing income inequality in America, that class mobility seems to be at an all-time low, and that if we don't begin to address the problem, the consequences for America and American democracy will be severe. But even while we embrace the problem, we don't really seem to know how to begin to solve it. Programs including taxes to create a kind of redistributive fairness are a non-starter in Washington and in state houses throughout the country. So where do we begin? My guests, Greg Duncan and Richard Murnane, argue that the answer may be in our schools, that only education can begin to level the economic playing field. Greg Duncan is a distinguished professor in the Department of Education at the University of California, Irvine. Richard Murnane is an economist, the Thompson Professor of Education and Society at the Harvard Graduate School of Education and a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research. Together, they're the authors of Restoring Opportunity, The Crisis of Inequality and the Challenge for American Education. Greg Duncan, Richard Murnane, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Great to have you here. As we try and understand this, is the first place we need to look at the way labor markets in this country has changed, the hollowing out of the labor markets that we've seen in so much of the country, is that kind of the starting point to begin to understand this? Richard? Yes, I think it really is a starting point in that um, in the late 1960s, for example, and in previous decades, there were a great many jobs that paid a middle-class wage to high school graduates who worked hard, but the only skills they really needed were to, to be able to read well enough to follow directions, perhaps through simple arithmetic, and they did the same tasks over and over again filing, uh, bookkeeping, uh, typing, lots of assembly line work. Those are the easiest kinds of jobs to computerize and actually to send off short or lower wage countries. So those jobs are disappearing at a very rapid rate and they don't pay nearly as well as they did in the past. So that really is the uh, fundamental change in the labor market. Uh, and this hollowing out has been uh, another characteristics of it are, is that there are a growing number of jobs that require uh, the ability to problem solve, the ability to communicate effectively, both orally and in writing, the ability to work productively with people from different backgrounds. So the number of those jobs and those jobs that pay well have increased. So those high school graduates who uh, leave school with the basics, with the skills to be able to get access to those jobs and the post-secondary education and training offered is necessary for those jobs are doing fine. But those who leave without the skills to, to uh, succeed in those jobs uh, have to compete for the growing number of service occupation jobs, the number of which is also growing, but uh, they don't pay well enough to... Uh, uh, support the next generation of children because uh, most America, most people can do those jobs. I would just add, um, we're really focused on the consequences of income inequality for the for the next generation. How how can we change um, education in particular in a way that's going to equip kids uh, to get the kind of middle class, upper middle class jobs um, that they used to be able to get with these high school degrees and. I think it's important to realize as a consequence of what uh, Dick's been saying, you know, it, it's not a matter of somehow getting us back to the golden days of, of U.S. education. The, the bar has been raised, the threshold has been raised, and schools serving uh, low-income children in particular um, have to 
um, increase the amount uh, and nature of skills that uh, they're providing to kids through the education process so that these kids graduate with these skills that will enable them to get those new middle-class jobs. And one of the areas where we see the most profound indication of this is in some of the numbers that you have in the book with respect to the income disparity of what's being spent on children and children's education. Talk a little about that, Greg. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty amazing. Back in the early uh, 1970s or so, the Bureau of Labor Statistics went out and uh, gathered data as part of its consumer expenditure survey, so you know uh, exactly what high-income and low-income families tended to spend uh, for what we call enrichment expenditures, things like um, uh, daycare, uh, private schooling, computers, books, um, the kinds of things that uh, kids need to kind of to, uh, have the kind of background knowledge that they're going to need in order to uh, do well in school. Back in the early 70s, uh, there was a gap between high and low-income families. If you compare families at the top and bottom uh, fifth of the uh, income distribution, so the top 20% versus the bottom 20%, um, you had the, the, the top fifth spending 3000 uh, and some dollars uh, per child per year, while low-income families were spending about $800 or so per child per year. You'd expect that kind of gap uh, given the first set of families have much higher incomes than the uh, the second set of families. But if you fast-forward it to the mid-2000s, uh, what you see is uh, a growth at the bottom from 800 and some to about 1300 and some dollars per child per year, but the, the 3000 has grown to more than $9,000 per child per year. So the, the 15 to 16 million kids who live in uh, high-income families in the top 20% of the uh, income distribution uh, are having uh, more than $8,000 worth of expenditures per child per year. That's almost as much as it's about what we spend on uh, on public education for a child in a given year. So that amount and that gap uh, relative to the low-income families is uh, enormous, and it provides um, an enormous advantage for kids originating in the home that will help them uh, do well in school. And the parallel with all of this is what we have learned in the past several years with respect to cognitive development and its relationship with socio and emotional development. Talk about that, whichever one of you would prefer. Go ahead, Greg. Yeah, so um, kids um, need an assortment of, uh, of skills and behaviors coming into school in order to uh, do well in school. And uh, the developmental psychologists tend to uh, group them into cognitive skills and so-called non-cognitive skills. Cognitive skills are uh, things like reading achievement and math achievement. Uh, and the non-cognitive skills are a wide assortment of, um, of an ability to... Um, uh, what's called cognitive self-regulation, to be able to sit still, to engage in what the teacher is trying to uh, to teach. <clears throat> and then there's kind of emotional self-regulation, so <clears throat> things like getting along with uh, peers, getting along with teachers. And uh, there are differences, um, very large differences, uh, at school entry between the, especially the, the reading skills and math skills. That difference has grown uh, enormously over the last uh, 40 years. 
Um, there are also differences in um, in uh, behavior. Uh, they aren't as, as stark between low-income kids and high-income kids. If you um, run the motion picture forward and ask uh, what kind of skills kids enter school with are particularly helpful for doing well in school, um, it, it tends to be the, the achievement type skills that are most predictive of how well kids do in school. So this gap, this huge gap between uh, high and low income kids in terms of the, the level of, uh, of math skills and reading skills that they start out with is very important and, uh, and worrisome. And again, if you run the motion picture forward to say grade five or grade eight, you find just as big a gap uh, between high and low income kids and those kind of skills as you did back in kindergarten. So one might hope that schools would be uh, uh, an institution that would help uh, narrow the gap, but in fact uh, they aren't structured in ways to uh, to do that. Does this mean, Richard, that we need to be looking at greater emphasis on the, the pre-K activity, the kind of stuff that you talk about that's being done in the Boston schools? That's one thing that is surely important. I mean, there isn't a magic bullet. There's our kids need strong supports in school at every grade level. But the um, having a high-quality pre-K program is really essential in uh, closing these gaps that Greg has just described at the time children are entering school. And uh, the evidence from Boston is, first of all, that it can be done. It is possible to provide at some scale, in Boston it's about 70 schools, a high-quality pre-K program, and that it really does make a difference. So if I could just add, um, in our book what we try to do is identify instances of uh, education programs that have been proven to be effective uh, with very rigorous evaluations. And the Boston uh, system for pre-kindergarten education is, is one of them. Uh, another one is uh, a set of charter schools in, um, in Chicago. Another are small high schools that uh, were developed in New York City uh, over the last 15 years or so. So in every case, there's, uh, there's a good evaluation study that's showing that they have quite favorable impacts. And what we tried to do was to, to go into some of the Boston uh, pre-K classrooms and talk to the director of early childhood education for Boston uh, and really figure out what it was that was the active ingredient. And uh, we've actually produced a, a set of videos, uh, six-minute videos, that show what these classrooms look like. It's on our website, uh, restoringopportunity.com. And in the book, we try to look across the various interventions uh, at the common elements that seem to undergird their success. Uh, and the big common element uh, that you can see in these videos and uh, are explained in the book, uh, the, the biggest one is really the kind of supports um, that teachers are pro provided with, uh, good curriculum, good coaching, uh, good professional development that enable them to deliver high-quality instruction to the uh, kids in their classrooms. To what extent will looking at Common Core and these new curriculum changes that we're about to see in, in most of the country, to what extent is that paralleling some of these best practices? Rich? Uh, very much so. I think you know, the Common Core is both an extraordinary opportunity for improving American education, 
but also an enormous challenge because the standards that are laid out in the Common Core for English language arts and mathematics are more demanding than the standards in almost all states. And I think the standards make sense because they emphasize the kinds of skills that employers are looking for, uh, employers who, who pay relatively high wages. So the Common Core makes sense. I think the challenge that it poses, first of all, is that uh, a great many American teachers uh, don't know how to teach in ways that will allow all children to master these Common Core standards. It's not that they're not working hard. They are, but uh, they haven't learned how to do that. Also, the... Um, First results from the Common Core uh, assessments, and we've seen this uh, in New York State, will show a lower proficiency on average for American uh, students than prior tests have shown, and also considerably larger gaps by socioeconomic status, because the advantages that the children from high-income families have, that Greg has described in part from the, the uh, more money their parents have spent on child enrichment show up to a greater extent on these uh, common core assessments than they have on less demanding assessments. So we'll have lower average performance and larger gaps, and that's a challenge for a great many states is do they want to stick with this even though it will mean larger investments in education, and the tendency to back off that is great, but it it is really important to the nation's future, in our view, that the nation embrace these challenges and recognize this is not something that can be accomplished in a few years, but rather it will take a decade or two to really make substantial progress in having all children master these critically important common core standards. The other aspect of that relates to accountability. Greg, talk a little about that. Yeah, well, that's the other um, most important principle. Um, one is the support that we've talked about with uh, coaching and curriculum and so forth. Uh, but the other is an element of, uh, of accountability to uh, ensure that um, the, the, the instruction and the setup of the school itself uh, is producing results. Now, we've had accountability through uh, No Child Left Behind, uh, and it's been implemented in a rather... Uh, ham-handed kind of way, but we're really talking about uh, a different kind of accountability. Some of the, the schools, the elementary school and the high schools that we feature, uh, did face accountability from uh, from the state to have test scores up to up to standards. But um, in the Boston Pre-K, for example, uh, there was a self-imposed uh, kind of accountability where the director of uh, early childhood education that who was in charge of the Boston Pre-K voluntarily uh, set a goal that every classroom should meet uh, the accreditation standards uh, that have been developed by a national organization that uh, has very high standards for accrediting uh, uh, classrooms. So he uh, insisted uh, that that should be a goal and is working toward 100% uh, accreditation. But there's also a kind of accountability that uh, that the teachers describe to us that uh, is kind of a shared uh, sense of responsibility for educating uh, all children in the school. So 
in the uh, high school that we visited, for example. Uh, it's a public high school, and kids are coming in um, with uh, some kids with very low uh, reading scores at fourth grade level, sixth grade level, and so forth. So in ninth grade, there was a, a very concerted, coordinated push to uh, ensure that all the kids' uh, reading skills were, were brought up to uh, something close to uh, high school level. And they did that with a double English period, but they also did it with coordinating literacy instruction across all the classes that ninth graders took, math classes, a forensic class that they all took. And they would have weekly meetings where they would uh, uh, talk about curriculum uh, plans and uh, individual students uh, to try to make it a coordinated effort to ensure that none of the kids were uh, were being were falling into the cracks. So it was kind of a shared accountability to each other to accomplish the ambitious goals that they had set. Can I just add two points on that? Sure, please. Uh, one would be that it's critically important that strong school supports and sensible accountability are critical complements. They're not substitutes. They're not alternative paths. And the reason is if you hold people accountable uh, uh, without providing the capacity for them to uh, do the job well, you shouldn't be surprised that it's uh, bad things happen, including teaching to the test and, and, and worse. So you need to have the supports in place to accompany the accountability. But the supports alone don't really do the job either because it's hard for adults to change. So some pressure to uh, uh, to change the way that they are teaching is often a critical complement to providing the high-quality professional development and coaching. And the last point, you know, what do we mean by sensible accountability emphasized in the book? Well, I think a, a, a litmus test of whether an accountability system is sensible is whether skilled uh, teachers are attracted to work in high-poverty schools. Uh, when they're not, of course, then accountability can worsen the gaps between high-poverty and low-poverty schools. But sensible accountability does make uh, it more attractive for skilled teachers to work in high-poverty schools. How do we keep up with the changes that are continuing to happen in the broader society at the same time we make these changes at, as you both indicate, a slower pace within the educational framework? Certainly the nature of work continues to change. The nature of technology continues to change. Our understanding about the importance and values and areas of socio-emotional development continue to change. How do we adapt to all of this rapid change in a system that moves painfully slow, even in the areas that it's trying to improve? Richard? It's clearly extraordinarily difficult. And I think um, uh, there's no simple answer to that question. Uh, in the past, uh, having uh, local control has been a, a, a strength of American education, as two of my Harvard colleagues have pointed out in a very nice book. But it also has meant this extraordinary inequality, an inequality that has grown, as Greg has described. So I think some uh, having common goals, as described in the Common Core, makes sense. Another um, thing that has happened with American education that is encouraging is the substantial growth in not-for-profit organizations that provide support to schools. Uh, 
the, uh, there are, for example, a lot of organizations like the Boston uh, uh, Teacher Residency that train teachers in innovative ways. New York Leadership Academy trains uh, school uh, uh, leaders. Uh, so, so there really is a growing uh, density of these organizations that can help schools adapt relatively quickly. The challenge for American education has been to develop uh, systems that uh, provide the resources and the knowledge to individual schools, particularly high poverty schools, to take advantage of the knowledge and uh, resources that these not-for-profit organizations can provide. Right. If I could um, just add to that, you also included um, the new research showing uh, socio-emotional skills uh, might be more important than we thought. and um, it, It's certainly important to try to keep up on the research, but it's also important to um, keep a long-term perspective on, uh, on what's most important. So we've had in the last few years uh, research showing that preschool kids who can uh, delay eating a marshmallow that's put in front of them end up doing very, very well, and that uh, these so-called executive function skills uh, uh, appear to be very important for kids, and maybe we should spend more, much more time developing uh, uh, those kinds of skills. Um, it, it's, um, you know, in our view, I think uh, the most important changes that have taken place, the most important uh, findings that have come from research, uh, have concerned the nature of these macroeconomic changes. Uh, that have uh, that have evolved, uh, producing this much higher premium on uh, concrete skills, uh, more advanced math skills, more advanced literacy skills, uh, critical thinking skills, communication skills. And I think the best bet for schools is to keep their eyes on the prize uh, of developing those kinds of skills. And that's why we're so um, excited about the Common Core State Standards, which uh, are very explicit learning goals laid out grade by grade, which uh, at the end of them will uh, will uh, try to in instill these kinds of skills that we uh, know are very important now and we suspect will be very important for the next 30 years. Of course, one of the things that sometimes gets overlooked is that in many cases, the Common Core standards, the effort to promote them, really came from the business community and from states more than they did from the top down. Talk a little about that and its impact on how we look at this long-term view of the future of education. Greg? Yeah, it's, it, people think it's been uh, imposed uh, on, on high from the uh, federal government, but you're right. It really did um, start with states and it started with uh, industry um, as uh, states and industry realized uh, how important it was that uh, they needed a workforce that would have the kind of skills, the 21st century skills that uh, that would be important for the future. So uh, it, it, um, it was very much a bottom-up process. Uh, states have been um, developing and adopting them, and the federal government has been encourage ado encouraging adoption of, of standards like the Common Core State Standards. But they're really uh, uh, they're really quite fundamental for um, thinking about how to structure educational experiences grade by grade that will uh, that will accomplish the job. 
if I could add comment to that. So, you know, one of the challenges educators across the country face is uh, making the case to parents that the kind of instruction that will help children to master these common core standards makes sense. So for a lot of American uh, parents who, particularly those who don't have post-secondary education, they ask, why is it important, for example, that the child be able to explain the process that led to a particular math answer? Why is it important that the child be able to uh, examine on the Internet uh, uh, the evidence on global warming and be able to make a, uh, a sensible judgment about what small part of the thousands of responses actually make sense and can be constructed. Those are skills I didn't learn when I was in school, many parents ask. Well, I think a lot of parents are frustrated by uh, the change in the labor market and that they haven't done as well as they hoped to do and had reason to do when they were growing up, but they don't understand these changes and they don't understand why these skills that are embedded in the common core are important. So that's a real challenge for educators in making the case to parents that uh, the education that was sufficient for the economy of the 1960s is not sufficient for the economy of this century. And that raises the issue of the holistic approach to all of this and the importance of supporting these families in projects like the New Hope Project that you talk about. Greg? Yeah, right. We've, we've talked only about schools so far, um, but the consequence of income inequality is that the uh, children, again, 15, 16 million kids in the bottom uh, 20% of the income distribution have had families' incomes that, uh, if anything, have gone down over the last 40 years in terms of real purchasing power, uh, while families in the, the top 20% have gone up. The gap has increased by about $50,000. So um, other things that have happened over the last 40 years is you have uh, a lot more parents working. You do have a lot more single parents, but single parents are working a lot more than they used to. And the, the, the task of, uh, of raising a family, of managing a family, of balancing work and family needs uh, is one that uh, all families share, and it's difficult for middle-class families and upper-middle-class families, but it's especially difficult for low-income families whose low incomes puts them in a much more precarious kind of position. So uh, one of the chapters in the book is devoted to uh, uh, a program that was uh, evaluated in a very rigorous way in Milwaukee that um, was a kind of uh, compact uh, between the program developers and uh, participants in the program that said uh, if, if, if people um, bring a commitment to full-time work, which is defined as 30 hours or more per week, uh, to the table, then the program would provide them with an earning supplement that would bring their family income by the poverty line, it would provide subsidized child care of reasonably good quality. It would provide subsidized health insurance. Um, and if they needed a job to build up a, uh, a work record that um, a, a private sector employer would, uh, would like to see, then there was that available on a temporary basis. So it was this package of supports uh, that were available to families. It was a three-year uh, experimental period. And it was evaluated uh, not only for its impact on work, which increased substantially, um, but also for its impact on kids in these families. And it turned out that the, 
the teachers uh, who didn't know which kids were in the the experimental group and who, which families were in the which, uh, which kids were in the control group rated their the, the kids' achievement and behavior, especially the boys, um, as much higher in the uh, in the experimental group relative to the control group. So this and a number of other uh, welfare to work experiments during the 1990s show that. Um, if you uh, fashion a, a program that encourages work, uh, helps to increase family income, uh, it can have these positive impacts on, on kids, which uh, will help reduce the, the gap in school readiness uh, when kids start school. Richard, talk a little bit about the, the small, before we uh, wrap it up, the small high schools of choice in New York City and, and the success that they're having. Sure. Uh, you know, the, the uh, Gates Foundation put a very large amount of money in, uh, in supporting urban school districts uh, moving to small high schools. Uh, in a great many cities, and in most cities, uh, it was done in a way that really didn't bring about change in the daily experiences of the adolescents schools. Rather, what was typically done is a large high school was uh, uh, closed and uh, the students in that school were divided into four groups and the teachers in the school were divided into four groups and they said, okay, now you have four schools. And uh, there was very little change in children's experiences except perhaps someone knew the kids' names. And, and that was a good thing, but not nearly enough to change uh, uh, children's uh, experiences and, the, and their and their learning. In New York, it was done very differently. With the support of three foundations starting in 2001, uh, there was uh, a, co a design competition under which small groups of educators working with community partners, and they had to be community partners, could submit designs for new small high schools, and they had to follow uh, a set about uh, ten principles that were that were based on the best understanding of adolescent development, and uh, those schools that those proposals that uh, seem sound uh, uh, were uh, the developers of the proposals that seem sound were provided with uh, income uh, with resources to develop these schools. And uh, there now are more than 200 small high schools of choice in New York City, and they have replaced more than, than uh, 50 large, quite dysfunctional high schools in low-income areas that had very low graduation rates. And in these small schools of choice, uh, there really has been uh, quite uh, energetic uh, focus on what these kids really need and on how can we collaborate in providing those skills. And the evidence from a very good evaluation is that uh, these small high schools of choice increase high school graduation rates for low-income uh, students from about 68 to 75 percent. And that's a very big change when you're thinking about thousands of, of students particularly in the school system that uh, has not been known for uh, 
the change. It's been thought of as a sclerotic bureaucracy. This is quite a dramatic uh, uh, improvement and one that I think has implications for a great many other school districts. Greg Duncan, Richard Mornane. The book is Restoring Opportunity, The Crisis of Inequality and the Challenge for American Education. Their website is restoringopportunity.com. Greg, Richard, I thank you both for spending time with us today. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.